Recovery Elevator, Episode 75. And we can still study in school and acquire knowledge, but we're missing out on emotional maturing and development when we're always indulging and getting drunk. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got another gentleman named Paul. He's 42 years old from Denver, Colorado, and has been sober for a year and a half. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. This just in, I'm breaking up with the word alcoholic. Also, probably the word recovering alcoholic. Sure, you're going to hear me refer to myself as an alcoholic in future episodes. But I read a very interesting article from Megan Ralston a couple weeks ago. The author Megan did experience in her life a difficult and chaotic time with drugs that is now behind her. She lays out a compelling argument of why she's breaking up with the word addict. And after reading the article, I also wanted to break up with the word recovering alcoholic. I was planning on using the old it's not you, it's me line. Or I might just stop calling myself a recovering alcoholic. I don't know. I haven't quite decided yet. And you can find a link to this article at recoveryelevator.com and the podcast episode show notes episode 75. She uses the word addict, but for this podcast episode, I'm going to replace addict with alcoholic because it's kind of the same thing. I am an alcoholic. Damn it, I've already called myself an alcoholic again. This is going to take some time to break up with you. But really, it's kind of the same thing. I never associated myself with an addict, but I guess I am addicted to alcohol, so don't need to overthink that one. I'm probably an addict also. Basically, when we hear the word alcoholic, it is totally okay for us to accept that person's description with just one word, alcoholic or addict. Rarely do you hear people say, and what does he do for work, Bob? Or, okay, does Tina have any hobbies? It's always like, yeah, Tina's an alcoholic. That's it. Can you think of any other disease where we simply use one word to describe the person? In another situation, this is probably how it goes. Yeah, my nephew Steve has leukemia, but he is a damn good soccer player. Rarely does it stop right after leukemia. I mean, how weird does this sound? Yeah, my nephew has leukemia. Radio silence. That never happens. But with the word addict, alcoholic, and even recovering addict and recovering alcoholic, those words and those statements alone usually stop the conversation. There's nothing more that defines us. Now, I started saying from podcast episode one that me being a recovery alcoholic does not define me. I am still a person. I still love third eye blind. And at one point, I used to be able to ollie onto a curb. That's a skateboard trick, by the way. Point being, I'm a person. That doesn't totally define who I am. My sobriety is one of my crown achievements in life. It doesn't matter if I relapse tomorrow. I'm still going to be very proud of the time I had sober. I would like to think my days of chaotic alcohol abuse are over. But I've learned the hard way that that might not be the case, and I'm doing everything I can to prevent a relapse. 
What I'm getting at is we need to find a new language or a new way how we talk about ourselves or how we talk about another person who is struggling with drugs or alcohol. If we're really serious about battling the stigma, then I think some unconventional thinking is necessary here. We may need to throw out all the words we are currently using to describe an addict, an alcoholic, a recovering addict, or a recovering alcoholic. I can tell you from first-hand experience, I am very comfortable calling myself an alcoholic. Hell, I've stood on a stage in front of hundreds of people multiple times and called myself an alcoholic. But still, there's a twinge. It just doesn't sound right, no matter how many times I say it. I'm totally fine being out of the closet, but damn, I wish there was another way to say it. Now, there are plenty of people who bring problems to life, just like I am doing right now, but very few who offer solutions. So after the interviewee, Paul, I will try to give some possible solutions. They may not stick, but who cares? We got to keep trying. Now let's hear from Paul. Paul, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Just want to comment on your name. Great name. Short, simple, only four letters. Great name, by the way. And Paul, how long have you been sober? Paul, I've been sober about 18 months and 20-some days, and that's that's both uh, from drinking alcohol and marijuana. And, and as we go on in our discussion, you'll sort of see why those two are intimately connected when it's one is relevant to the other for me because it's all about addiction in my mind. Absolutely. And before we get into those questions, which I can't wait to hear the answer to, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun? Well, uh, oh boy, I could talk forever about all that stuff, but I am from a suburb north of Denver, Colorado called Northland. It's your typical American suburb. We have boring fast food and, and a red lobster within walking distance of my house. And so not super exciting, but I do like it here. A lot of nice people in my neighborhood. And I help my dad with uh, the management of his commercial investments, which leaves me with a lot of free time to pursue my own interests. So I'm a philosopher, basically, and I wear a lot of different hats professionally. I know stuff about web development and audio engineering and stuff. I'm a musician. I've recorded a lot of music over the years. I'm, I'm 42 years old. I feel very young. And uh, when I saw my 96-year-old grandfather, it confirmed for me Wow, I am super young still. I still feel like a kid in my mind, and I'm not married. I'm divorced, and we have a six-year-old daughter who's like my favorite sort of pastime, if you know what I mean, raising her. Yeah, um, and tell me about living in Colorado. I understand some legislation was just passed, and marijuana is legal. You brought up earlier that your story integrates with alcohol and marijuana. Talk to me a little bit about that, and and did, did you replace one with the other? Um, Well, you know what? A lot of my friends and I think it's very ironic that once marijuana was legalized in Colorado, that's when I decided to quit because I just wasn't happy doing it anymore. I could tell I was emotionally just burnt out on it completely, no pun intended. And, And for a long time, I was doing it all the time and knew that I didn't want to do it. And I felt trapped and I knew that I would never get out of it. And In the past, there have been a few times when I had extended periods when I did quit, but what has always led me back to it is I would still drink. And so when I drink, I get like a mad super trigger to want to smoke. I've even had friends tell me like, you're obsessed with smoking now that you had a few drinks. Can you stop it? And I mean, like it's it's at the forefront of my mind. It's like, 
hey, there's a pretty girl I could go talk to, but I don't want to do that. I just want to find something to smoke. So I'll go up to a bum on the street and ask him to smoke his joint <laughs> if, if I feel like I want to smoke at that moment. Drinking is a trigger for a lot of bad behaviors for me, and so that's sort of how those things are interconnected. Paul, let me let me ask a question real quick. So if I hear you correctly, you would drink first and then you would get those urges to smoke marijuana. Would it be safe to say that alcohol for you is the gateway drug and not the other way around? Yes, I've always said that. It's the ultimate number one gateway drug. When I smoke marijuana, what happens is I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'm in this state of mind. It's totally my drug of choice. And so, but when I do alcohol, it will like, It'll trigger all these other behaviors, all these other drugs that I might be like, oh, hey, yeah, you put that in front of me, I'll do that. And and it just got tiring. And, and I, I've always, like I said, gone back to smoking pot from drinking. So this last time I decided, hey, I, I will just, I, I was daydreaming about it for a long time. I'm like, I'm not happy emotionally drinking anymore. So I will quit both of them and see how that goes. I got 10 months without marijuana um, before I quit drinking. And then, then I was smoking marijuana for two months before I really did the full sobering up without drinking and smoking. Yeah. So did your definition change a little bit of what sober was? Cause when I was a dry drunk, yes. um, I was like, well, I'm not drinking alcohol, but if you, uh, you know, I don't really actually don't think I smoked marijuana when I was sober for 2.5 years, but I think if it had showed up in front of me, I'd be like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, yeah, so sober to you means no no marijuana and no alcohol. Is that correct? Sober means no no mind-altering drugs whatsoever. I, I do take these uh, pills called Brain Force, which is just like it has a very small amount of caffeine in it, and it's, it's like I take a half a dose a day or something supposed to take two of them and it, it makes me feel focused and stuff it's like way less than a cup of coffee brain force as seen on tv and i'm drinking a lot of coffee right now paul i think i've heard about brain oh, yeah, force. Good. i've heard it's good stuff and talk to me about the podcast title recovery elevator when did your elevator hit its bottom was it 18.5 months ago or was it the 10 months before that when you decided to quit drinking oh my gosh alcohol yeah well, it depends how you look at it, because I remember in 2010, I was under a tremendous amount of stress. I was in a very stressful, failing marriage. I had a business downtown in downtown Denver that that was failing, and I was accruing debt trying to keep it going, and some personal things happened in my family, and I was under intense pressure, and on top of that, I'm drinking and smoking like a madman and thinking this can't go on very long because I had an outrageous temper. That's really one of the problems I had that my mood would fluctuate so wildly from happy-go-lucky to angry and angry like breaking a, a picture frame on the wall in front of me multiple times, just like not handling my stress well at all. And it was it was abundantly clear to me. I was not like lying to myself about it. I just didn't know how to get out of it at the time. Sure. Okay. Talk to me about yeah, the anger so, though. Like would the anger come when you would drink or was it all the time and drinking made it better? I was all the time. Like even if I wasn't drunk, I would be stoned all the time. And and, and potheads don't like the way I speak about pot because I think I'm, I'm, for me personally, my mood is all over the map. If you were like a fly on the wall and you had a bird's eye view of me in the morning, you would see me yelling and screaming at people who weren't even there 
and it was just outrageous. And I've found so much more peace and sobriety that it's it's unbelievable how I feel. I mean, you would you would say, oh wow, dude, you have a problem, and I was not in denial of it. I just didn't know how to do anything about it, and it just boiled down to a moment. After getting drunk on my sister's birthday, December 12, 2015, a few days later, I was in the shower and I was just like, I'm sick of this and I want to both quit drinking and smoking. And like the first month was the hardest. And even the Christmas holidays were really hard because I went to my sister's house and people were drinking wine. And so I was around it. And I recall being extremely, there was a strong pull to want to drink because I was newly sober from both of those things. And I didn't. Somehow I made it through and, and there's much less of a pull, but I don't expose myself to those situations anymore. I won't even go to a party if I know people are going to be there smoking pot, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it sounds like December 12th, 2015, you said you were tired of it. Sounds like you got to the point where you were sick and tired of being sick and tired, but you were also ready to quit. Does that sound about right? Yes. Totally exhausted. But like I said, I had 10 months prior to that year of not smoking weed, but I was drinking lightly like, and occasionally going out and getting drunk. But certainly, what was I saying? Boy, you'd think I'm stoned now with the way I forgot what I was just, my train of thought. But actually, I just, do you want to ask your question again? And I bet you I can yeah, talk Paul, right back Yeah, Paul, no worries. Then. No worries. It, oftentimes, I have the memory of a goldfish, which is why I've learned during these interviews to have a notepad and paper so I could write it down. But no, right. really the question is, you know, it sounds like you got to a point where drinking was not an option. December 12th. There's really no yeah. good time to get sober, but getting sober on December 12th, right before the holidays and New Year's, that's a tough time. And when you're at those holiday mm -hmm. parties, it didn't have an option. And what I mean by that is the interview I just did yesterday, the gentleman named Weston talks about how it really wasn't an option. You're like, you know what? I want to drink. This kind of sucks. I'm extremely uncomfortable. Aunt Teresa, she keeps badgering me about why I'm not drinking, but I'm not going to drink. You can't really pinpoint why, but for me, in my mind, when I was in those situations, it just wasn't an option. Do you think you were to that point? Because when it always is a small sliver of an option that you might be able to take a drink successfully, then I always took that drink. So was it really an option at that point, though? Was it an option to drink? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. And, I mean, of course it was an um, option. You could have drank, but it sounds like you were ready to quit. No, I was I was in a mindset, honestly, like I'm really trying this. I, I just I'd always spoken to my friend Jesse about I want to get a year sober just to see how I feel, because I've spent my whole adult life way overindulgent. We haven't even talked about my young 30s when I was drinking heavily for years on end several times a week. And I wanted a year sober. And that was kind of the goal. And and I don't like to go back and forth. It's It's a really nasty yo-yo when you when you can't just really get straight and so uh, it was uh it was a real goal and like i said there were people there and i love the taste and smell of wine but it's like i can avoid the taste and smell for me it's always been about the buzz the buzz the buzz my dad always used to say don't drink to get drunk and i'd be like well then what's the point <laughs> I, I i never found the point i i never did 
Yeah. I wanted to make those feelings and emotions go away. I wanted to feel more comfortable at those parties. My jokes were funnier. I could talk to yes. to women. It, yeah, I, I understood that 100%. Now let's talk about those 30s and, and your 40s. Talk to me about your drinking habits. And did you ever impose rules upon yourself, genius ideas or plans to control your drinking? For example, I'm not drinking before 5 p.m. No, what's interesting is I was, I've rarely been the type of person to get up early in the morning and drink, and I've not been the type of alcoholic that is like, I'm out of control. Although I remember one summer in college about 20 years ago when the last month of the summer, I was drunk like every single day. I had an $1,100 bar tab, and I was like, oh, yeah, Dad, I got to pay for this. And he's like, what are you talking about? And when I went back to school that fall, it was like 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and I was in class, and I was like, Where's my beer? And so I realized, hey, that's like how addiction creeps up on you when you're just overly indulgent, thinking you're having a good time. Suddenly you're trapped into a mode of life and you're like, oh, what the heck do I do? So certainly at that time, I mean, like, to what extent am I an alcoholic? I don't know that it's the type of alcoholism where I'm like, I got to have a drink or I'm going to go crazy. It's more like, I put myself into social situations and overindulged over long periods of time. In my early 30s, it was like I was going to the bar uh, three or four times a week and drinking pretty heavily. And these were like afternoon happy hour type deal. And if, if I was in the habit of smoking weed at the time, I might have two or three beers and two or three shots. But if I'm not smoking weed at the time, that quantity could easily double because I'm like compensating for the fact that I'm not high. And then I wind up getting high anyway because I'm so drunk. I'm just like, whatever, I'll do anything. Give it to me. <laughs> and so, and so it was, it was a heavy lifestyle for years. You know, I've counted that, you know, two or three or four times getting drunk a week and a month in a full year, it's like that's a lot of hardship on the body. It takes a toll on the body, on the mind, on the mood, your organs, and and heavy liquor too. And there are periods, you know, when I would carry a bottle of tequila with me because I was like, I don't want to pay $10 for a shot of tequila. I want to have my own bottle, save a fortune, and I would I would give it out like candy to whoever. I was very generous with it. I would offer it to people and so forth, but that's a, and then in my mid thirties or something, I slowed my drinking way down because I had a health scare. Like the doctor told me I had an enlarged prostate and I had to go through like a terrible dehumanizing exam to find out that I didn't have prostate cancer, if you can only imagine. And fortunately I didn't, but it resulted in slowing my drinking way down because it kind of got me spooked. Paul, what you mentioned about your body, the drinking, taking a physical toll on you, all that is exhausting. And I wouldn't really worry too much about defining what type of alcoholic you are, because guess what? There's a lot of medical professionals that also don't understand mm -hmm. the disease. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's psychological, it's like economical. I mean, it affects so much of our lives. I mean, it affects so much, so many lives of those around us. In fact, you know, I interviewed Kevin Kirby like three weeks ago who owns WeFaceItTogether.org. And this should be America's number one public health concern right now. But for some reason, it's not. 
It's not at all. Um, you know, and, and Paul, let's switch gears a little bit and talk to me about how you did it. What was it like when you first quit drinking and quitting smoking, the full, sober, capital S sobriety? Well, you know, it boils down to the emotions when you're talking about those different types of alcoholism. For me, I recognize very clearly that, yeah, there's there's a mood, a bad mood you have the next day after drinking. But even I would find days later after really being drunk, I was in a dark, morbid funk. And so it really just, I was just really looking at it honestly, because I knew I was in an emotional place where I didn't want to stay and I wanted to improve. So it it was like I just decided to sober up. And so I'm lucky because I wasn't like a full-on alcoholic drinker when I decided to clean up. I just had another emotional low that I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. And I've done it for so many years. And just the desire to try something new was on my radar. And what have I missed out on being 20 years, very drunk often and constantly stoned and in skill and in emotional deficit I have, I think it prolongs juvenility. I, so I think we can learn things. We can, we can still study in school and acquire knowledge, but we're missing out on emotional maturing and development when we're always indulging and getting drunk and stoned or whatever your drug is all the time. And you're running away from problems. You're numbing yourself. So when you come back to reality, you're going to be stinging like a madman because you haven't dealt with reality in a normal way at all. So sobriety is the path to emotional maturity, and we're stunting our growth most of all emotionally when we're getting drunk and high all the time, I think. Oh, yeah, it's fun, but you're not dealing with life in the normal with the normal terms, if you know what I mean, sober. Absolutely. You're not feeling so life's emotions. And Paul, great, great stuff. And speaking of run, running away, you kind of ran away from the question on that one. But I love what you had to say. <laughs> um, how did you do it? Did you go to uh, NA, AA? Did you go to rehab? Mm -hmm. Did you just wake oh, up one day okay. and go, like, you know what, I'm done? My buddy Howard, we would share with each other some kind of the emotional issues we we're going through, especially substance abuse and whatnot. And he suggested why don't you go to Marijuana Anonymous? And it takes courage to walk into something like that, but I did, and I found a group of people and where I where I really identify with a lot of the things people say, and so it's like a fellowship, and you realize there are others out there going through the same thing, and going back weekly for me, it was several days a week starting out, but going back weekly, it, it gets my mind back into the, it reminds me like, oh, here's why I'm doing this, because these people are all reminding me of how I felt. And sometimes, you know, the addicted mind, like mine, will go back, it'll romanticize with the idea of smoking again. I'm like, oh, I miss that. I always called it a love-hate relationship. And so they've helped keep me on the straight and narrow. And, and there are a lot of things, I would say, that have contributed to my being a better person spiritually, getting enough sleep, nutrition, exercise, meditating in the morning. So, and these are all very important. And I think this is like a garden. Life is like something you constantly have to cultivate. If you're, if you're truly genuinely interested in having a calm, centered self, then you have to cultivate all these different elements together to have the one solid basis, the foundation, if you know what I'm saying. All right, Paul, I'm going to put you on the spot. How do you cultivate your sobriety? What is your recovery portfolio? 
consist of these days? Walk me through an average day in the life of Paul. Well, daily, compared to when I was miserable six years ago or even a few years ago before quitting, my mornings have changed enormously. I'm so much more calm because my routine goes something like I get up, I drink my hydrating workout, pre-workout drink, and then I meditate for 23 minutes. I completely clear my mind out and I focus on relaxation. And it's something I took from doing Kung Fu for a while. I did Kung Fu for over a year and I took a lot from that as far as meditation. So I focus on patience and meditation and, and calm because I think when you have these qualities in life, you're dealing with all your challenges much better when you can deal with it in a calm emotional state. So my temper has mellowed out. And so after meditation, I spend a few minutes praying, which is like a different wavelength, but it's still very calm. And then after that, I do my exercise routine in the morning, which I love like crazy. I do all kinds. I do a lot of weightlifting these days, but I've completed a lot of exercise programs over the past year and a half. And it, these are like the trifecta of things I'm doing. Nutrition is also important. Having the right amount of sleep is also important. But together, these are all the puzzle pieces that have made me so much more calm and even. And I, I told my sister recently, because I've sobered up and focused on all these things, I feel so much more at ease with things. There's just so much less anxiety. And I, I think there's a lot of stress that's just the natural mode of life. And I think I'm blessed because I see a lot of other sober people who are still struggling and they carry so much weight. And I want to be like, just let it go. Give yourself a break. So I try to develop habits, make the mind habitually not wrapped up tightly around that negative, but instead sort of just be, develop the mind so that there's, I dismiss a lot of negative thoughts out of hand. If I realize I'm on a negative train of thought, I'm just like, I can let that go. I don't even have to have that anymore. And God knows I'm not perfect, but it's so much easier than it was because of these habits. I have to keep coming back to the daily routine. And it's developing a spiritual self. That's part of it. You know, people talk about the higher power, whatever that is for you. For me, it's developing relaxation, meditating, being calm. So yeah, that, that's Paul, kind of a I'd like to dive a little bit deeper. Your question. Yeah, no, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the meditation component about that, how to reach the calm being yeah. in the moment, and why 23 minutes? Is that the magical number, or is Michael Jordan your favorite I basketball just, player? Uh, huh. how, how do you I've do 23 minutes? I've with different lengths. I probably, when I started, was doing like 10 minutes, and I, I wound up increasing it by a minute a day, and I've gone as long as 30 minutes, and I don't know why, I'm right around 23 minutes right now, and even when my alarm goes off on my phone and it's time to stop, I'm like, oh, I'm really into it at that point. And sometimes I'm like, I wish I could hit a snooze in my brain and just keep going. But it just winds up being about the right number for me because I've experimented with different lengths, and I think it would be different for everybody. Can you walk me through your meditation, what it looks like to use an app? Is there an exercise? Oh, I, it's it's something I've taken from a lot of different things in life. I've I've listened to people who meditate. Like I said, I went to Kung Fu, and that's part of it. Every time you go and train in Kung Fu, there's usually meditation right before you start for about 15, 20 minutes. And when I do it, there's a whole like ritual of things I go through, things I say to myself to get in the proper state of mind. At the very end, I'm just like, 
completely quiet in my head and I'm not saying anything, I'm not doing anything. And the whole idea is just if something comes to my mind, it's dismiss it and make my mind clear. Tony Robbins has this saying where he says motion equals emotion. So part of it is I, I go through each part of my body from head to toe and, and think of consciously about relaxing that body part and healing that body part. And it includes like not just my outer body, but my insides, my digestive tract, my heart, my vital organs. I go through everything. And there's there's a breathing component. And certain things I say to myself are about developing modesty. It's about there are a lot of things that are water metaphors because I I just think water is this flexible thing. And so it, I'm always like if I'm thinking about something I shouldn't be, I'm like just wash it away. I never get frust almost never get frustrated when my mind starts thinking about something I just say that's no problem I can think about that later and I can let that go and 90 to 95 percent of the time I've managed to get into a state of calm and it's not it's distinctly different like you're not unless you're some kind of year-long monk expert and you're doing it all the time you're not going to experience euphoria it's not like a druggy euphoria it's about being calm and relaxed and so, so I'm not looking for like a high doing it. I'm just looking to feel like I am calm. And when I finish, I'm like, yes, I got something out of that. I know there were moments where my mind was very clear and there's so much to it. Honestly, I wrote it out on three pages, everything I go through. And, and, it, and, and I say like, you're a unique individual. So it's like, try whatever works for you. A lot of people are like, I can't do that. I can't clear my mind out. It's like, I surrender to it before I, I meditate. It's like I want to meditate and I'm also like I'm surrendering to this process because it's really easy to be like, oh, my mind is on something. I'm like, no, I, I go in determined to get something out of it. And I, you don't have to set the bar super high. It's like I want to have calm and I want moments of clarity. And even if I will start out and I'll feel like my mind is uh, all over the place. And after taking a few breaths and just going through the first few steps, it's all of a sudden like I've clicked in because I have a habit of it now. Paul, so it's, it's development. Yeah. Um, I learned about an app called Headspace while interviewing somebody. And there was a great analogy that they, they referenced in the introductory videos. It's almost like you're sitting on the side of a busy road and you're watching all of the cars go past. So like a dog would run after all the cars driving by and recognizing the fact that you don't have to run and chase the cars, but simply just being okay right. with the cars passing by. I was like, wait, okay. I'm realizing that those thoughts are there. The thoughts are the cars, but I don't necessarily have to go chasing all those thoughts down the road. That's, that's when I, I had a milestone in my meditation and now I can make it to two minutes and 12 seconds. I, I don't know that exactly, but yeah, meditation for me is tough. I, I get three to four minutes in the morning, which I try to do every morning. And that's where the bar is set for me at this moment is an acceptance is the answer. And Paul, before we reach the rapid fire round, I want to chat with you a bit about you have a project going on. Um, when you emailed me, you mentioned you had a podcast called uh, Fitness Spaz. Tell me a little bit about that. Fit Spaz, right. This is my new positive project. I've been doing it about a year and it, it's about helping people get healthy and fit and stay sober and I talk a lot about substance abuse on there and I don't know how to convince people to get sober that's kind of something they have to find themselves I don't have the magic word to get them to that that moment of change where they're like yes finally time it's time I change but I, I kind of know how to help people once they reach that point 
Um, like, here's what I do. And it may not work for everybody, but I'm looking for people out there who, for whatever reason, what we have in common, my, my approach to sobriety might be something that can help them build that foundation to move into the future. Absolutely. They can take what they want and leave the rest. And where do we find your podcast, Paul? You can find it by going to fitspaz.com. And uh, it's somewhat humorous. I don't, I don't swear that much. I used to be a shock jock because this is, can I tell you another unique part of my story that actually led what's, up a, to this? what's a shock um, jock? I got an idea. But, well, uh, what's it's a kind of job? like a wild morning radio show host that'll say anything in super foul and disgusting and perverted and mean and wild. Hmm. That totally used to be me. And that's not what I, I thought a I shock job was going to be. Okay, but keep going. My my history that that is uh, in podcasting is I used to do a podcast called Marijuana Radio and. I did it for a total of three years, and I have a longer history of podcasting before that that led me to that. And I had a good run here in Colorado because there was nobody else doing what I was doing. And so we built up a rather large listener base, and I got to interview all kinds of interesting sort of famous people, Tommy Chong and Congressman Ron Paul and um, Barney Frank, uh, the congressman, and even uh, the current libertarian nominated guy running for president. He was nominated to run for the Libertarian Party, Governor Gary Johnson from New Mexico, and uh, and other a whole other host of celebrities who I've talked to over the years. Well, hold on um, just involved a in that industry. So you had a podcast called Marijuana Radio, and you're interviewing all of these. Those right. are big names. I know most of those names. Are you yes. in the interviews where you're like advocating to legalize marijuana? And, and then you've got another podcast called uh, you know, fit spaz, which is like quit smoking marijuana. It, right. Well, I didn't, I didn't start fit spaz until last year. Marijuana radio went between about 2007 to 2010. Okay. I, that's, and, I love it. And that's all part of the journey. Um, there was a time when yeah. I was absolutely in love with alcohol. I could have, you know, called party boy elevator or something like that. You know, I, I owned a bar in yeah. Spain and I partied my ass off blacked out every night of the week from ages 23 to 26. Um, wow, that's incredible. And, and Paul, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 sure. to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. What? Uh, yeah, okay, I guess. I <laughs> love it. What was your worst memory from drinking? I was going to say the worst memories from drinking I wouldn't even share with you because I'm so ashamed. Worst memories are sometimes what other people we're going through. I used to have a friend in high school who was a terrible drunk and he was a mean drunk and I don't like mean drunks and I stopped hanging out with him because he was a dangerous mean drunk. And so that, for some reason, that stands out when you ask that question. It's not me being drunk of where I go, oh, here's the worst thing in the world. It's just this person that I always remember who was the nastiest drunk I've ever met and I can't stand that kind of drunk. I won't hang out with that person. Yeah, it works for me. And next question, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Paul? It's to continue with my daily routines. And I also, I didn't mention it one uh, that much, but I really want to help others. I think helping people is essential to the process of recovery for anybody. You know, if you can really start to care about other people, you start getting beyond yourself and into a mind space where 
helping people is essential. You'll feel good about yourself. So there's this circular motion, a cyclical motion of paying it forward. You help yourself, you're able to help others, and helping others will help you, and that circle just keeps going and getting stronger. Good old Zig Ziglar said it best. And Paul, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I guess the, there's this statement, living life on life's terms. Like, instead of, it's just a total, it's totally wrong to think you can throw a drug at something to deal with your emotional problems and put them on the back burner. You're actually going to amplify them and deal with them more poorly by doing that until you get real, until you sober up. So living life on life's terms, I think that's essential. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Just do it. You know, if if you feel miserable, I don't know what magic words can we say so that someone has that epiphany. That's really hard. It's like people know it, but that that's the poison of addiction is you can know you're totally messed up and you keep doing the same thing over and over. And it's like a, it's like having, I don't know how you hit someone on the head with a brick to convince them to do that because addiction is such a disgusting, salacious thing when you get caught in it. I know that feeling of impossibility when you're stuck in it and they're like, I can't do it. It feels like I'm going to do this forever. And they're almost surrendered to the idea that they're going to do it forever. But you can change, so just do it. Just learn to believe that you can change. Get help. I mean, people are also embarrassed to walk into a situation and be like, I have a problem, but I think it's more embarrassing hiding and and being stuck in that problem than it is just going and finding a group of people or a fellowship or a, a rehab program. You should even surrender to a rehab program if that's the only way. Listeners, before we end this interview, there was a value bomb there, and it wasn't quite the Nike tagline, just do it, which you're right on that, Paul. It was, you've, you get to the point, you almost have to surrender twice. You surrender to the point where this is what your life's going to be like, and that is a miserable feeling, Paul. I know that very well. And then shortly after that, you surrender to the point where you're powerless over the addiction. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks for helping me stay sober. Well, thank you. I hope it, it meant something to somebody out there, and 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 you're doing it too. So I appreciate. I've listened to a lot of the people you've talked to, and and so it. And my my friend Howard suggested that I speak to you because I have an interesting story of my own, and so I hope people can do it. I, I think I need more friends because all of this life revolves around people getting drunk and messed up all the time. I need more friends who are into sober activities and stuff, and. And so sober up and let's hang out. <laughs> I love it. Thousands of times this podcast will be listened to, your episode specifically. So thank you so much for helping me and many others. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so how do we describe somebody in recovery or a recovering alcoholic? And again, the word describe, that's a shit word. My bad. How do we reference somebody who is in recovery or somebody who is getting their ass just straight up kicked by the disease of addiction by alcohol? So I'm going to say these words slowly and just recognize the thoughts that come to your mind. Here's the list that I've put a lot of thought into. Word number one is alcoholic. Word number two is addict. Actually, that's all the words on the list. Apparently, you only need more than one word to classify it as a list. Okay, short list. But after I said them, a lot of stereotypes popped into my mind due to the stigma. 
And you know what? Some of those stereotypes, they're not wrong. I did a lot of stuff that I wish I could take back while I was drunk. That's fine. Let's talk about some words on another list referring to people who no longer drink or no longer use drugs. Here we go. We've got sober. We've got clean. We've got in recovery. We've got recovering in the progressive state. And one that I really like that I got a couple episodes ago from an interviewee named Kevin Kirby is I'm in remission. Boom. Think about that for a sec. But still, even those words, they're pretty broad. They still come with stereotypes. Alcoholic? Yeah. Recovering alcoholic? Not quite blue skies and sunshine come to mind when I say the words recovering alcoholic. Same with clean. What the hell does that mean? You shower daily? Twice daily? Your body's clean? Your blood's clean? You eat clean? Well, I see you eating a Whopper right now. That's not very clean. What does that even mean? In recovery? Okay, pretty vague and ambiguous to somebody who's not in recovery, and those are the people we're talking to here. Remission. Recovering in the progressive state. I get it. I'm always going to be addressing my addiction for alcohol. That's fine. But recovering? Yeah, pretty confusing to someone who hasn't quite taken a bite out of that shit taco called alcoholism. Okay, like I said, many people bring problems to the surface without also bringing solutions. So here are some words that we could try to use. Yep, my brother Tony, he is abstemious, and he's also a lawyer. Yeah, that sounds okay, but 94% of the population probably doesn't know what abstemious means. Fortunately for me, I was in the 6% of the population, after I looked it up. Hey Susan, would you like a drink? I'm cool. I'm not indulgent tonight. I'm sorry, Susan. What did you just say? Okay, these aren't all winners, I understand that, but I've got more. Just wait. Hey Rick, it's go time tomorrow night. Pittsburgh Steelers are playing the Bengals. You down to get hammied with us? No, you know what? I'm on the Uber. You know you get it? Like, on the wagon? But now that I think about it, on the Uber, the people taking the Uber are probably doing so because they can't drive because they've been drinking, so we're just going to throw that one right out the window right now. Hey, Steve, you want to meet us Friday at 4 for happy hour drinks? No, I'm cool. I'm temperate. Okay, so do you want me to get you a Coors Light or a Budweiser? No, I'm temperate. Temperate, yeah, that's probably not going to work either, but, you know, I'm offering ideas. Don't got to use them. And what are some possible words we can use when referencing an alcoholic? Yeah, my cousin Mindy, she's a booze buff, but that's okay. She'll get through it. Yeah, Tom, see that guy Tom? He is a devotee to Jack Daniels. But I hear he's working through it. Hey, Andrew, want to play some beer pong? Hell yeah, I do. I'm an enthusiast for drinking beer. Hey, Sonia, how's your cousin Mindy? Well, she's still a practitioner, MD, with the booze, but she's reaching out for help and she's going to get through it. Holy shit, that guy Johnny Manziel is an aficionado for anything that will alter his state of mind. Aficionado was the word there. Hey, Antonio, how you doing? Well, you know, I'm kind of in a slump right now, and I could really use a slump buster. Hmm, that's definitely not going to work. Well, that would be the end of my list of genius words when referencing an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic. Oh, wait, two more just came to mind. How about these two? I'm trying to quit drinking and, wait for it, I don't drink. I don't drink. Those are three words. They're empowering. I don't drink. You could throw out there, and I don't drink today, or if you had something better than Bud Light Lime, I might possibly consider it, but I don't drink. I don't fucking drink. That's it. That's pretty easy to communicate that point across to somebody, And if they don't get it, just say it again. I don't drink. 
If you have a whiteboard and a dry erase marker, I'd be more than happy to write it out for you. I don't drink. That's it. I don't drink today. Plan is not to drink tomorrow. That's my go-to response. I often have a lot of fun when I get asked those questions and I respond with something like, well, it kind of depends on how much alcohol you got here. What do you got? But no, I don't drink. That's it. And usually their response in regards to a disease that is so complicated, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's psychological, it's sociological, and so much more. Their response usually is, okay, cool. That's totally fine. If they're a normal drinker, they don't get it. Nobody really wants to seem stupid, so they're not going to ask. And again, here's your friend filter. Wait for it. The guy or your friend who's like, you know what, dude, that's stupid. Have a beer. You'd be like, hey, hang on, Mikey. I had 752 friends on Facebook. Now I have 751. Wait for it. The people who do have questions about yourself or about your cousin, Michelle, would fall into one or two categories. Number one, the friend filter. They really care. Number two, they or a loved one is also struggling. I don't drink. What about that one? Think about it. Those three words can help your life out and help other lives out tremendously. Give it a try if you haven't. Sidestepping an answer like, do you want a beer, is often what happens and is the easier way out. No, I'm good tonight. I'm on a diet. No, I got to wake up tomorrow morning. I'm good. But three words, I don't drink, is like an investment that will continue to pay dividends way down the road. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. Now let's go ahead and be abstemious and take the stairs back up. God, that just doesn't sound good. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. Show me a slump buster and let's take the stairs back. Nope, that one definitely doesn't sound right. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We're going to ride the Uber back up. Again, I'm sure the majority of Uber riders are just shit-faced after 8 p.m. So let's try this one. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up because we don't drink. <laughs>